Exceeding Expectations, episode 53. Welcome to the podcast where we aim to give you ideas on how you can over-deliver and give amazing experiences to the customers you work with, which results in better reviews, recommendations, referrals, and uh, all that sort of stuff. Today's episode is with Alexander Lowry, who's revolutionized the MBA industry. It typically takes thousands, tens of thousands, even even six figures to to get an MBA and many, many years of very hard work. And they've um, come up with ways to make it a very different process, much less expensive and not taking as much time, but still producing great results. So that's today's episode with Alexander Larry. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you do, why not share it with someone you think may get good um, value from this, especially anyone you know who's maybe considering taking it, you know, doing an MBA. Leave a review for us on iTunes or one of the other podcast platforms and maybe even think about joining the Facebook group. Right now, it is time for this week's episode with Alexander Larry. Exceeding expectations, my guest today, Alexander Lowry. How are you doing, Alexander? I'm very well, Tony. Delighted to be with you. And you're based in Boston. I am. And how is Boston? Because you're not a native of Boston, are you? No, I'm not. And, and we were joking before the show that the, the hard part about me living up here is I'm a New York sports fan and Boston's our big rivalry and uh, most of the Boston teams are better than the New York ones. So I get a lot of shtick. <laughs> and what, what what sport is it that you're referring to? Is it general sports or anything in particular? Uh, so uh, American football, uh, ice hockey, basketball, baseball. Uh, most of them are pretty good around here. Um, we don't we don't really have. It's sort of like the same uh, rivalries for, for soccer in the UK for your football. Um, I remember when I moved over to the UK, lived there for seven years. The night before, I was with a bunch of expats, and they were all saying, "Well, you could, you're going to be a Fulham fan because you're in London." You need to be able to get tickets. And this is the team with the American players. So that's your team. <laughs> <laughs> and did that sway you? It was great. I mean, they've got a beautiful stadium right on the water. And uh, they've just, when I was there, they always just barely stayed up. Like they avoid relegation. So I was able to go to the game and it was great fun. Right. And with the, had you ever been to a soccer or a football game before that? No, and I, I will say I enjoyed the differences between uh, the football and the rugby, right? Gentlemen's game played by thugs, those game played by gentlemen, and the differences <laughs> in, in how the crowds work and the interaction. Both are great games. I just enjoy watching how the crowds get into it. Hmm. And what was it that took you to London in the first place? So I was working for a British consulting company called PA Consulting Group. So I worked with them about a dozen years. I was the first American they sent to the UK. So they had uh, sort of built a beachhead in the US by acquiring a company. And uh, I joined them, in, I guess, in a Machiavellian way because I'd always wanted to work abroad. My perspective was if you do really good quality work, headquarters is going to want you. You'll get a promotion. You get a chance to go over. And sure enough, that's what happened. And I guess that'd be my first tip to everybody. It's like when you get a job, your job is to be excellent in your job. And if you do that really mm -hmm. well, people will notice. You build a brand, you build a reputation. And I got sent over to the UK. It was supposed to be a two to three year secondment. And in the back of my mind, I was also thinking, well, if, you know, if I could stick this out and get a passport, that'd be pretty cool. So that was when Tony Blair was in charge. And Tony changed the rules from six to seven years to get the passport. And I stayed just long enough. And basically, the, the day I was eligible was the day I went home. My paperwork went in and it all worked out. And I've got British citizenship now. Wow. Okay. 
And so do you think that will ever come in handy? Well, I was just going to say, it's not worth what it used to be now with everything going on in Brexit, but still all the play for it. We don't really know what's going to happen on every day. It's a different headline, right? Oh, wow. It's, yeah, you try living, living through all this. It's amazing. <laughs> I just think so, about a business person trying to make decisions. How can you uh, possibly plan if you have no idea what's going to happen? It's absolute madness. It, I mean, it's something that if the, if someone had created a TV show about this 10 years ago, everyone would say that's, <laughs> that's farcical. That would never happen. You know? It's definitely a Monty Python episode in here somewhere. It is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so then you, so you went back to the States in, in around about 2010 and you were telling me earlier, that I, I liked what you were saying about how you were putting in too many hours and something your wife said to you. Do you want to tell us yeah. that? Yeah, so... The way it worked for me, so PA Consulting Group brought me back to the U.S. with the plan for me to help build up and grow and develop the business. And I went to Wharton to get my MBA. So I was in the executive MBA program while you're still working in the consulting. And as happens while you're in business school, you hear about all these other great opportunities. And when I finished that with you know basically a great finance brand, I moved over to work on Wall Street. I joined J.P. Morgan. And as is typical in these sorts of industries, you're working crazy amounts of hours. You're, you're full of J.P. Morgan's headquarters in New York City. And there's about 12,000 people in the headquarters building. They're all uber type A personalities, not just type A's, like uber type A's, right? And everybody's trying to get past each other, step on each other and do well. So I'm running around that rabbit wheel pretty crazy fast. And I'm, I'm going about 100 hours a week. And I got engaged during this process. And my now wife, who is a wonderful, caring, kind woman, very gently said to me one day, I don't think you doing 100 hours a week at a bank is going to do a whole lot for us. And I don't think that's going to set us up for success. And she's very smart and very right. So we mm-hmm. began thinking about the next opportunities. And we got married. And then we were expecting our first child. We're like, okay, this is we got to leave New York. got to leave this craziness behind. And an mm-hmm. opportunity opened up at a university outside of Boston here. We're on the beautiful North Shore. And they needed someone to start a master's in finance program. My background's a fit. The quality of life was a fit. And I was telling my wife last night over dinner, I don't miss the insanity of New York. She said, I miss my friends in the restaurants, but otherwise I'm with you. Mm. And so what, what exactly is it that you do now then? So we launched a one-year master's in finance program. And the easiest way to think about it is, uh, I know MBAs are slightly different in the UK, certainly in pricing and, and the model. But here in the U.S., it's basically a two-year program for the most part, with the assumption being you will do a summer internship in between, and that's how you figure out what job you want to do. So your first year, it's all general knowledge, strategy, marketing, accounting, operations, finance, legal, ethics. You will do a little of everything, and then you figure out, okay, I think I want to be this, and this might be marketing, it might be finance, insert whatever it is. You go do a summer internship in it, and you go, we come back and go, yes, I do. That's who I want to be. In your second year, you specialize in that field. All right, well, that's a lot of time. It's a lot of lost salary, first of all. There's the cost of doing the program. And in the U.S., in U.S. dollars, the average MBA cost is $140,000. And if you want to go to a top school like a Harvard or Wharton, it's closer to two hundred. dollars plus add in the lost salary of two years. You're talking some crazy money here. And my thought process was, that sounds broken to me. But also, Mm. when I was at Wharton, my class, we talked about all these required ones to do your first year. My class on ethics, the professor who had been teaching at Wharton for 40 years for this class, he walked in on the first day, and there were 90 students in the room just chattering away. He walked down to the center front table, threw down this huge manila folder, made a loud thud. And the whole crowd stopped talking and looked at him. He pointed at this giant folder, and he said, these are all of my students from this class, from Wharton, over the last 40 years, who've gone to jail. And I'd like to not add to it this semester. That's the ethics professor. 
right? <laughs> and I thought, that's bonkers. There's got to be a better way to do this. So clearly for us, as I thought about all of this, okay, so when we think about employment in America, finance jobs, number one is New York City. That's where Wall Street is. But number two mm-hmm. is Boston. Right. So you've got all of these companies up here. And for us, we have great longstanding relationships. Now, 10 years on from the Great Recession, there's also a very clear assumption amongst most of the country and probably the rest of the world that, hey, we could use more ethical decision making in financial services. Right. All right. So mm-hmm. what we did is we built a program that instead of two years was basically takes the one year, takes that second year. If you know you want to be a finance person, you can just get those specialization in half the time. And we do it for a lot less because I know cost of going to university has really dramatically increased in the UK, but also nowhere Mm. near the US levels, right? So we do it for a much Mm. more cost-effective way because people have so much undergrad debt here, Um, but we do it in a great way that still builds in the internships, has ethical underpinnings, not in one class, but in all of our classes. And we feel like we're preparing students to go make a difference, basically to do well while doing good. Mm. And then they're not saddled with that huge debt afterwards as well. Right. Wow. And so and how and has it has it worked as you thought it would? I mean, how has it developed? So we've just had our first class. I've been here a year and a half. So part of it was launching and spreading out with our first graduation ceremony the recently. And we had our first few graduates, which is very exciting. In some ways, I'm still in my beta mode, right? I'm, I've got my MVP, my minimum viable product, and we're out there, we're testing in the market. But to some extent, it's like a, the tree that falls in the forest. And if no one's there to hear it, you wonder whether it existed. I can build the greatest program in the world, but if we don't market and get the word out about it, and all of that takes a little bit of lead time because you have this sort of chicken egg thing. People are going, well, tell me what your graduates have gone on to job-wise. And until you've had Mm. the graduates, there's no story to tell. Uh, Mm. But we're getting great feedback from people in the industry in Boston going, I need your students for internships. I need to be hiring students like yours for full-time jobs. People are educated, people we can trust. Um, They're not sort of... Uh, the common parlance on Wall Street in some firms was what they called long-term greedy. Uh, I get what they're coming from, but it's still greedy at the end of the day. So we are trying to put people out there who can represent themselves and the industry very well and do good things. And when you first sort of created this and you started telling people about this, was there any pushback from people sort of laughing at you saying, you can't do, you can't do that. The finance industry doesn't work like that. <laughs> to, to some extent. And, and the reality is also you're swimming uphill. So, you know, think about mm. for my school for Wharton or Harvard or some of the other top schools that are entrenched and have the great names industries. It takes probably about a decade before, you know, a brand new school starting at graduates in a position of influence become to, to, to certainly to senior level jobs um, who are then not only spreading the good word, but having platforms and people are understanding your school. So all of that's going to take a long time, but we're in it for the long run. So that's absolutely fine. So there were people saying, well, how are you going to beat the entrenched players? And also you're, you're fighting against a system that it's all about the almighty dollar. And I'll tell you, when I was on Wall Street, that was one of the things I struggled with on a daily basis. You would see some abhorrent behaviors that were not only condoned, but encouraged by senior management because they resulted in profitability. I'm not a fan of that. That was always one of my biggest struggles there. And so do you think the finance industry is changing along those, you know, the, what you just talking about there? I think in multiple ways for different reasons. So, for example, the regulators across the world have put lots of different 
infrastructure in place, more regulations, more bodies to try and make sure things don't happen again in a bad way. Now, we've seen what mm-hmm. happens from the past is um, government's always a little bit behind. Even if they have the right intentions, they're probably going to bog down the business in bureaucracy. Uh, they're clearly not ahead of the game. They're reactive. You need to be proactive, figure out where the next problem's going to be. And that's not what government is necessarily good at. So will it have some changes? Yes, in a good way. Uh, I think businesses are also starting to realize there's been so much pushback from the public. Think about like Wells Fargo and all of the problems that they've had from incredible unethical behaviors of opening accounts for people, signing loans fraudulently, terrible, terrible behaviors because they were pushing for profitability. I think some Mm -hmm. companies are finally realizing we can't do it like that. We have to be better than it. So I think there's a a lot of different reasons why things are slowly changing. And because also, I mean, there was just, I I mean, I imagine it's the same situation there. There's just no trust from the public whatsoever. And the problem is, you know, you think about any of the the big companies, uh, RBS or any of the others, even in the UK, um, people are generally unhappy with them. These are companies that are wildly profitable and people don't really have too much choice. You have to use one of them for something. You're always going to be grumbling about them for one thing or another. And uh, these are companies that have shareholders that have to give them big profits. That's what is expected of them. So, I would say it's, it'd be impossible to make all the stakeholders happy, and the public will probably have rightful reasons for different things to complain about, but um, this is not an industry that's ever going to make everybody happy. I mean, we were talking before, and you were t- telling me about how you know, you've, you've kind of revolutionized the, the old MBA industry. Do you want to talk more about that? So there's also a, a generational aspect to it as well. So when we think about the millennials are in the workplace, the next generation is coming up behind them, Uh, each generation has different attitudes and there's a four cycle of generations that switches over and it's fairly predictable. So we are seeing people now, and especially if you add in what's happening with the internet and technology around it, people want what they want, when they want it, how they want it. And they're unwilling to think about the the typical approach of a view of millennials is they want to be the CEO on the second day. That's a little bit unfair. What they want is meaningful work. They want to be having opportunities for growth and development. Uh, Their appetite to sit in an MBA class for two years to go and be a peon coming into a company is pretty low, which is why over the last five years, we've seen applications for MBA programs drop off a cliff. And even at the top programs, they've been falling off as well because people are recognizing it's long, it's expensive, and it may not get me where I want to go. And I don't have to have that proven model anyway. So I'll give you an example from J.P. Morgan. When we were hiring in the U.S., there is one thing you are legally allowed to discriminate on. You can ask, do you have a college degree with a yes or no answer? Um, you couldn't ask that in terms of like what's your gender or what's your pay, things like that. But you can discriminate that way. And in the grad school, what they will say, you can't ask that in the same way, but you will basically say, and we strongly prefer a graduate degree. And you might as well triple underline that because like at J.P. Morgan, you're not going to get a job, even a a mid-level job, certainly not a senior job without being able to have that. And you can check that box in different way. You can have a master's in social work or public health or an MBA. They all check that same box. And don't go to grad school to check a box, but can you be smarter about checking a box while you're getting the skills you need to at a better time frame at a better cost price? So we feel like all of that factors in. Coming back to, again, some conversations we had before when we were talking about uh, elevating the board conversation. Mm. Do you want to tell me more about that? 
So one of the things that I've done here is, uh, you know, coming from working crazy hours like we talked about on Wall Street to now being an academic, I have a lot more control over my schedule, a lot more free time to explore and do the things that I love that also give back to society. And one of those is a podcast. So, for example, we are on one of those now. There are the numbers I've seen over 700,000 podcasts out there, right, which makes sense because it's so easy for someone to start one. And there's a big differentiation in quality. But when I looked around the space and trying to figure out what could I do that added value on something that I cared about? And I'm a huge proponent of board work. I love doing boards. I'm a portfolio board member myself, so I've got a career aspect around that in addition to what I do in academia. And we as a university have a professional radio facility that we use for our students, but was basically used just in the evening. And I thought, well, this is like real estate that goes wasted during the day. I can use that. We've got all the technology we need. And when I looked at the podcast universe, the board space is not very well covered. There's very little that talks about it. Think about there's all these podcasts you can listen to about getting a grad school, uh, getting a job, you know, whatever niche you want to, but very little in the board space. So we launched a podcast called Boardroom Bound, which helps new and aspiring directors to become basically successful in the boardroom. So there are people, Tony, I'm sure listening to your show who think, you know, at some point when I retire, I want to do board work. Or some people saying, you know what, I would love to do some nonprofit stuff on the side as a way to give back and help out and anything in between. Some people say, I'll go to a nonprofit because that'll make me more attractive to get a paid board role and become a NED, whatever it might be. All of those people need a certain amount of knowledge and skill set, help on networking, on building their board resume, um, having the right information at their fingertips to be successful before they get into the role and go, oh my gosh, how do I do this? Because it's a daunting mm-hmm. prospect. And think about most of our lives. We are promoted by doing well in our jobs. And we talked about it before, doing excellent work, especially is how you move up. When you become a NED, you've got to change your mindset. Now your nose is in, fingers out, right? You're not the one doing anymore. You're not leading, you're coaching, you're advising, um, you're asking challenging questions. That's a huge shift for a lot of people. We want to prepare them so they can be successful in that. So you mentioned that there wasn't really anything in like this. Prior to your podcast, what would people normally do to, to find out this kind of information? So there are organizations that people would join. So, for example, there's a NEDA in the UK. It's called Non-Executive Directors Association. Uh, the FT has a NED program, which for, I believe it's, is it? 4,000 pounds or so, um, you can join and they will give you the professional skill set and the background. But we talked about this before. Today, people want the knowledge when they want it, how they want it. And that's the beauty mm-hmm. of podcasts, right? People can be listening to this while they're working out or they're doing the dishes or they're, they're doing the yard work or DIY, DIY project. Um, and there's so much information that we can bring them from people around the world. Like you and I are having conversations on different continents and that's recorded mm-hmm. and that's in your pocket. So I can connect. I've got a podcast recording later today with one of the leaders in Australia in this space. And I can bring that to my audience and have it be convenient for them, which I just love. It's so much, it's so much fun. So you've been doing, you said you started the podcast in February? Yeah. And how, how has it developed since then? Has it gone the way you thought it would? I mean, has there been any sort of changes in your thoughts about it? Well, I'm a planner by extraordinaire, right? So I did a lot of project management work in my management consulting day. So I will always have a plan. And I think it was mm. General Westmoreland from the U.S. who said, no, no plan survives the first shot of war. So you got a plan B mm. and a plan C. But if I want to hear God laugh, I just have to tell him my plans, right? So I had a clear <laughs> sense for how I thought this was going to go. And it's, it's morphed and changed in different ways, both the interest that we've seen. I assumed it was going to be mostly U.S. listeners. We've seen a lot of global listeners. It's a topic that's very trending these days, especially when you think about diversity. 
the rage right mm-hmm. now is we need more diversity, not only in the boardroom, but the C-suite. And both of those are right. And the common reaction for most people is that means by gender. And we definitely need more mm-hmm. women there. It's slowly becoming also more minorities there, which is also a good thing. But I also think about it as someone when I lived in the UK for seven years, that changed my perspective on worldviews. So you need more international perspective, different socioeconomic background, age also plays a big difference. You don't want everyone in the boardroom to be 60 years old because they may not be in touch with certain segments of your customer population. Certain skill sets. Think about how important social media or cybersecurity is, things like that, that technology these days. You need representation from that as well. So for me, the boardroom space, if we use diversity of thought as a concept, that has blown up exponentially in the last few months in the U.S. and will continue to do so. I had not anticipated that would be such a big part of our podcasting world. So uh, for me, the, the sky is the limit. I think more things just keep landing on my desk of people who are interested in the good feedback we're getting. So um, I've enjoyed the journey. I'm sure in the same way for yourself, from your first podcast to this one, like how you approach it, what you're saying, what you're doing changes. And, and that's part of the fun for me because I'm trying to be excellent at it. And I feel like I'm constantly evolving and learning new things. Mm, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned there about when you went to London and before we started recording, you were telling me about how you were in a, a member of Toastmasters while you were in London. Mm. And for anyone listening who's not familiar with Toastmasters, because obviously in the UK, we have these guys who wear red jackets That's who right. are called Toastmasters, <laughs> who have nothing to do with the Toastmasters International Organization. So, so for anyone listening, Toastmasters is a, a public speaking organization where you go to to improve your communication skills. So how did you first find out about it? And what was it that you, why did you go there in the first place? Now, I've always loved presenting and public speaking, probably not a surprise in the sense of the academia, how that's a fit for me. Uh, I did that a lot in my job anyway as a management consultant. And when I moved to the UK, there was also a need to be more social. You've got to make new friends and, and find ways to be connected. And someone that I met said, well, knowing what you love to do, I think you would like this organization. And they were specifically a member of what was London Cardinals. And they said, this club specifically, I think the people and the caliber in this club, and they tend to win a lot of the awards, you will love in many different ways. And I showed up and sure enough, oh my gosh, this was like a magical fit. So I'm a large guy, right? So I'm about six eight. Um, and the guy who's the president of the club was also very tall. He was this outgoing Australian. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can learn so much from this guy. And there were great people there, but also the caliber was so high. Everybody's pushing themselves to be the best in a, in a positive way. And I really enjoyed mm-hmm. that as well. So I grew and developed and my whole time living in London, I'd say probably about six to seven years, I was in Toastmasters and it was just a, a perfect love for me. And when I came back to New York, I was very involved in a lot of the leadership here. And it's been a great organization. I think for anyone who's trying to improve themselves now, we talk about being excellent at your role. You've got to be a communicator, whether that's one-on-one in meetings, in a board meeting, or presenting in front of a group of people. Some people probably would never want to be in front of a thousand. I think that's a lot of fun. You need those skill sets. And and talking of expectations, I mean, when you first joined Toastmasters, what what did you, did you think you were going along just simply to improve your speaking? and, And how did that turn out? I think I quickly realized that every club is different in the sense that um, some are public, come public, some are private, um, some are geared towards, say, women in business, some are for people learning English as a second language, some are, we talked about it before, Tony, you were in one that was for more workshops and probably personal um, professional development type opportunities. So finding the individual niche, I guess I just assumed it would give me some additional um, 
tools in my toolbox that I could use to improve mm-hmm. my public speaking. I hadn't really realized the, the competitions that were involved, which is a chance to get a bigger stage, to really push yourself in terms of the level of professionalism and the friends that I was going to make. That was clearly the best part, and I hadn't anticipated that. Hmm. Okay, changing tack a bit, we were talking about um, uh, something, again, another subject we were talking about was your management consulting days. you want to tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so I think when you think about starting a career, and, and this is probably changing a little bit with the way startups are going, but in general, people probably started out of undergrad in one of two ways, and I'm biased because these are my two ways, but management consulting or into finance Wall Street type space, working in the city. And for me, management consulting is perfect with that liberal arts background where I went to. Sort of think about the Oxford and Cambridge, and you're learning about every subject you know, and you can research, you can write, you can communicate, you can present. And to me, that's management consulting, because at a young age, you are dropped into different companies all around the globe, meeting with executives, people you arguably you have no a justifiable experience being in front of, but it was great fun. And so for me, I'm, I'm working in this field and you're just constantly like a sponge, you're soaking up new information, whether you're learning about sort of verticals or horizontals. So you might be in an industry space working financial services or energy, whatever it might be, or you might be in a horizontal, you might be working change management or project management, something like that. And there's just so much knowledge to learn from all the senior people you're working with and you're constantly on new clients. Uh, so for me, I thought that was an amazing start to a career because you really can't or shouldn't know what you want to do right away. You've got to experience different things. And management consulting is a great way to, on, a, on an accelerated pace, learn all of that. And what were your general thoughts on exceeding expectations? <laughs> so I have this view, and again, I'm an uber type A personality like we've talked about before, okay? So I'm probably not the norm. But my perspective is not that I want to be the best, and everybody say I'm the best, but I have a standard for myself, and I want to constantly exceed those. So I think I was diagnosed by a therapist, one that they called unrelentingly high standards. So um, as soon as I hit the goalpost, I'm going to move it again, right? But I'm mm. constantly trying to be great. So it doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to be the CEO. If I start out as a box packer, I want to be the world's best box packer. I want to do it really well and be proud of my work. And I guess I also know if I do really well, people, I believe, will recognize that. I will be promoted to be the world's best box packer and teach the others how to do the skill set that I've figured out. So I I feel like I bring honor to myself and the organization I'm with if I bring my best self every day and do a good job. And you want to find something, obviously, that you love because then it's easier to do that. Think about people we all know who really don't like their job. That's hard to bring your best self every day. I know you've got a, there's a quotation that you quite like about exceeding expectations. Yeah. So Sam Walton was the founder of Walmart and I thought he phrased it very well where he was basically saying, exceed your customers' expectations. If you do, they'll come back over and over. Give them what they want and a little bit more. And you think about Walmart, right? It's one of the biggest companies in the world. Carrefour from France sort of rivals them, but they basically piled it high and sold it cheap. So it was great value. People would come back. It was a good business model for them. You can argue how they sort of squeezed uh, some of the suppliers to get the margins, but take that aside. Basically, they continued to surprise and delight their customers, which is why they grew into the the empire basically that they have today. They're the only private company in the world with their own satellite. Think about how successful that is. That means they've got an eye in the sky who can figure out the data that no one else can. For example, Walmart knows there's a couple things. If they run out of, you will abandon your cart in the middle of the store. If they run out of Oreos or Tide detergent or a couple other things, you will be in the middle of your shopping. You will leave the cart and you will go elsewhere. They're that important. Nobody else knows that because they've got their own satellite. <laughs> they've got their own satellite. Yeah. That is amazing. <laughs> so how is... Um, 
Because, you know, obviously Amazon is is massive. So how is the battle between those two guys? Well, that is what's fascinating, right? So um, you can argue one of two ways. So the brick and mortar versus the online. Clearly, Walmart Mm. is racing to catch the online. And that's why they've been scooping up some other companies and buying Jet and other businesses to try and catch up. But you're also seeing Amazon trying to catch up to Walmart. They're building more stores. They bought Whole Foods to have a footprint Mm. right away. And they're changing some of those stores. When I lived in UK, the first Whole Foods came in in the Barker's building opposite uh, High Street Kensington Tube Stop near where I lived. So you could see them. They bought out what was called Fresh and Wild, and they started slowly putting it in. Um, But Amazon realized this is a way for us to quickly get a footprint. Now, I would argue it will be hard for Walmart to catch Amazon because of their amazing online presence. But Walmart's really good at being cheap, really good at finding value. And there's not a lot of barriers to entry to getting online. And they already have a lot of customers. I would argue it's going to be much harder for Amazon to build the physical presence that will match Walmart. You've got to find the locations. You've got to build the facilities. You've got to hire the people. That is going to be a lot harder to catch. Walmart's not going away. People still come to their stores. And will they be able to get some online stuff and learn and develop? I think so. You don't have to be first if you can find ways to do it better. Mm, it's interesting because over here, we don't really have anyone of the sort of size of Walmart to compete with Amazon. So Amazon are really just kind of cleaning up in the UK. Well, I think about a Tesco or some of those big organizations, right? The access to data they have, if they can mine it really well, they do have some barriers to entry that Amazon's got to catch up. Now, Amazon can be really good at shipping and logistics. And there are some people that would say, I wish I could do everything online and people are moving that way. Other people don't trust it or believe in it. or Maybe they don't have the same access to the internet or whatever it might be. So some people will still always go down to the local Tesco um, which gives them opportunities. Taking this back to the whole kind of MBA discussion that we were having before, I presume there must be sort of MBAs um, kind of directed or focused on, on this sort of area, on the new way that um, retail is going to go over the next sort of 5, 10, 20 years. Well, so you can think about it in a couple different ways. So you can think of you're an MBA and you're studying strategy or some of the other nuances of the space because all of these companies are looking to hire smart people. They need, they need an army of intelligent people to figure this out and to build the systems and to make sure it works and to lead the team and motivate the people. Uh, there are probably some other schools that have individual uh, electives around this sort of space that are trying to stand out in it. And I would equated more towards the startup environment. So venture capital, private equity, people starting their own businesses. That's the space where a lot of people are learning the same sort of ideas. Because frankly, Amazon, we all think will take over the world. I would argue there's going to be some companies that don't exist yet that are going to rival them in different spaces because smart people come up with a better product and make it happen. And all the time, we're seeing all these unicorns that are going public now or about to go public that came out of nothing because it was a great idea and grew to be these behemoths. More will come. Mm. And, and how do you think that education will change in the next sort of five, ten years? We are seeing more, like I talked about before, people wanting um, when they want it, when they want it, how they want it, where they want it. So think about online education. So that is, without a doubt, some schools have moved into it very quickly and have done well. But I would also argue there are certain things you will still want to be face-to-face with. So, for example, we talk about internships for our programs and having access to Boston for our students to get those jobs. 
as long as the world of work still requires people face-to-face, and there's some industries that are staying to that and others that are moving away quicker, that will change the dynamic of education. So as you see more companies saying, you know what, I'm happy with remote workers because the, the cost to hire them is lower because I'm not paying for workspace. As you see more of that change, I would think you will correspondingly see more online education go up as well because employers will then start to think, well, maybe I don't need to buy the brand name school. If I can prove you have the right skill set, that's probably good enough for me. But there's still a cachet for certain school names. We're talking about Harvard or Wharton, whether it's grad school or undergrad, um, and how that works and ties into people's jobs. This will change dramatically over the next five years. Mm. Well, Alexander, it's been fascinating chatting with you. If people want to find out more about you, where, where would they go to? So, you know, I would actually suggest my podcast would be the right way to go because I'm thinking anyone who's listening to your podcast – likes podcasts. They probably listen to multi other podcasts. So I would think mm. the Boardroom Baden podcast would be a great place for them to go. And I would specifically point them to episode 17, which is about building a brand. I think that would be a perfect one for your audience. It would resonate a lot with some of the other people that you've had on the show. And I will send you a link, Tony, so you can put that in the show notes. Okay, fantastic. And just, just let us know your, your personal links as well. So your LinkedIn and so yeah, on. Yeah, so uh, for LinkedIn, it's Alexander Lowry, one word. Uh, Instagram is alexander.s.lowry. And my Twitter is Alexander S. Lowry, one word. And I'll send you all those so you'll have the links for the show. Okay, well, yeah, all of those will be in the show notes. It's been, well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, Alexander. And um, yeah, I wish you well for, for the future. Tony, it was great fun. Next week is episode 54 with Kevin Wilhelm, and he's from a a company called SBC, Sustainable Business Consulting, and they integrate sustainability and innovation. They work with some of the largest companies in the world, companies such as Whole Foods and Nordstrom and um, many, many huge uh, organizations around the world. So that's next week, episode 54 with Kevin Wilhelm. Please do join the uh, the Exceeding Expectations Facebook group. Why not leave a review for us on iTunes or one of the other podcast platforms? Hope you have a fantastic week. See you next Tuesday.